The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio with Lee Whitting. Whether you're listening on TalkZone, by podcast, through the archives of our ad-free shows on our YouTube channel, or connected through the incredible content of our Facebook page. Today's show is based on my talk at IAN's annual conference held in Salt Lake City earlier this month. The theme of this year's conference was oneness, and my talk reflects what I've learned on the subject from my NDE or interviews on this show, and I hope you find it interesting. Please feel free to add your thoughts in the comment section of our YouTube page. My thanks to IANS for inviting me to speak. From my childhood, NDE at age seven, it took me a long time to become a pastor, a hospital chaplain, and finally host to NDE radio. Listeners know the show's goal is to provide glimpses into the oneness of love, which is the ultimate reality. The original title for this talk was Near-Death Experience Reports, The Red Pill for Discovering Reality. That red pill analogy is based, of course, on the Matrix movie view that this life is a fantasy, a dream state, devised by an artificial intelligence of man's own making. The movie's storyline is choosing to take the red pill wakes us from the dream and imposes on the newly woke the obligation to defeat that AI enemy and replace the virtual reality fantasy we're living with real life on Earth. Comparing the red pill to NDEs is limited, however. It's a cup-half-empty approach. It got replaced in my mind the other day by a simple cartoon Lilia Samoilo, our associate producer, found for our Facebook page. Two chickens are facing each other from opposite sides of the road. One chicken shouts to the other, How do I cross to the other side? And the other yells back, You are on the other side. So I'm renaming my talk today because that's the underlying theme our podcast is shouting out to all us chickens. You are on the other side. It's the glass half full approach to mankind's story. It's all just a matter of time and time is only a pretend dimension anyway, necessary for writing our story. To be honest, though, both ways of looking at the glass are true. Every soul is born knowing we're already on the other side, but that doesn't mean the AI enemy isn't in our face most minutes of the average day. Just to add up the waking hours you're caught by your phone or laptop, and you'll be, you'll see what I mean about virtual reality. Every story begins with a phrase, once upon a time, And it was exciting to start NDE Radio back in 2013. I saw it as a forum for celebrating the Windows into Heaven's NDE, uh, Windows into Heaven, NDEs provide. Each story is another piece of an enormous multidimensional jigsaw puzzle. Revealing a picture of the ocean of love, time tells us we're headed for. Unless, of course, we're already there. And these bodies that we call us are merely avatars in search of adventure. Was St. Paul shouting, you are on the other side, when he said, we are already seated in the heavenlies? In that dimension, I believe, oneness has cradled us from the beginning. While here we dabble with the idea of oneness like kittens playing with a mouse, deciding if, like the red pill, it's good or evil to eat. Speaking of good and evil, AI, I found the internet a handy medium for NDE radio, but also saw it as a tool that divides us. As today's cell tower of Babel, the internet can easily deteriorate into lies, porn, and abusive social media. It's where many people go to grow their egos and harass one another. As a tool for research and communication, that's extremely useful, but problematic as well. It's a medium capable of addicting and dividing users more readily than the biblical Tower of Babel, which I believe God destroyed as a favor to us. When powerful technology gets ahead of our maturity, 
all hell can break loose. So using the internet for NDE radio gave me pause. It reminded me of my dad, Chris Whitting, and his career in early television. In World War II, he'd worked in camp shows and got to know many stage and screen celebs who came to the USO to entertain the troops. When he returned to New York, he helped establish Dumont Television, one of the first television networks. I can remember how hopeful he was that TV would be educational. Instead, they soon wound up broadcasting shows that work commercially, like Hopalong Cassidy, Captain Video, The Honeymooners, and live The Friday Night Fights. The deal was to have two fighters in the ring every week, and it was guaranteed by the New York Mafia. (sighs) Almost immediately, early network programming became a race for dollars, with a few exceptions. My dad gave Fulton Sheen, an archbishop of the Catholic Church, his own weekly program to talk theology. And those discussions still get broadcast now on the Catholic Network some 70 years later. Compared to radio and TV today, the Internet is clearly the easiest platform to access for anyone with limited funds, and that certainly was me. I'd done radio since my days at Columbia University's WKCR in New York, and more recently a show called Earth Tones on Community Radio WERU in Blue Hill, Maine, where I played Native American and New Age music and read accounts, NDE accounts from IONS on each show. I was working toward oneness on Earth Tones, but the broadcast range at the local station was limited. And if you missed the show, it was gone. On the internet, on the other hand, every show is heard worldwide and preserved till God, of course, may knock it down again. Still, my awareness of the internet persisted. A rabbi pointed out to me years ago that WWW, the World Wide Web, reads 666 in Hebrew. 666, the tool of the beast of the earth, is described in Revelation. The goal of the beast is to turn us against one another in division and hate through racism, sexism, nationalism, religious bigotry, and the like. And that's what the World Wide Web excels at, especially these days. The theme of this IONS conference, the concept of oneness, is something we talk about and even try to engender from time to time. Historically, it's been explored in different ways by philosophy, theology, science, and math. There are quantum reasons to include math, of course, but I especially mention it because the humorist Douglas Adams wrote in his Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that the answer to the question of life, the universe, and everything as determined by the massively deep computer of his novel is the number 42. I thought 42 was a great joke. And I made it the mailing address for my church, P.O. Box 42. I told people tempted to write us asking the big questions that all they needed to do is address the envelope and then reconsider their question in light of the address. I don't know if Adams, in coming up with a number as a computer's answer to the big questions, was aware of the fact, though, that 42 reduces to six. Numerology for the number of man. Anyway, I'll return to 42 again before we're done. Folks have tried to describe oneness for millennia through both religion and philosophy, but the question is still confounded by the divisions of earthly life. Love is the oneness answer I get from NDE radio interviews. NDEers seem to agree universally on that basic fact. But love is a word human minds ordinarily define in terms self-serving in our lives as humans. For myself, I had an NDE-defining recognition of love when I drowned at age seven. So let me tell you briefly what I learned from that. I was conceived during World War II, twice, I think, intending to be the oldest child born to my mother, Grace. When she miscarried the first time, I believe I stuck around for her second pregnancy to get born. I arrived in Manhattan's Salvation Army Hospital, where my mom later said with a smile, I was born under a sign. 
Well, apparently they'd painted the words Jesus saves on the ceiling above the delivery table. Anyway, my dad was away at the war and I had my mom's undivided attention and love. We adored each other. And it was like I'd left the love of heaven for the love of earth. But that all changed when I turned four. My dad came home. My mother was distracted. And my two sisters soon were born. No more undivided love for me. And I missed it. I remember I was pretty unhappy by age seven when, not knowing how to swim, I waded too far into a lake and went down. I came up once suddenly terrified, and screamed for my mother. Then with my lungs emptied, of course, I sank to the bottom. Although she was in the cottage, my mom heard my scream and came running out and ran down to the shore. And I know this because I saw it. My soul was watching her from where I floated up in a birch tree. The love of God I'd forgotten was all around and flowed especially through my panicked mom. God's love plus mom's love was real and had always been there for me. I'd just been too depressed to see it. My mom dove in, found my body, dragged me out, laid me face down over a log and pumped on my back. In effect, the log did chest compressions and got my heart started. I thought my mom has given birth to me once again. One of the first changes that resulted from my revelation was a sudden and profound interest in the big picture I'd seen. Instead of watching the regular kid shows on TV, nights would find me in the backyard with my telescope, looking at the craters on the moon, searching for Saturn and Jupiter, or maybe just anticipating the oneness I'd glimpsed during my NDE. I even built a planetarium in a room in our attic so I could turn on the stars and be one with the universe whenever I needed to jog my memory. We're born asking questions because we've come from a reality that erased our memories. Even if we've lived past lives, we start over again and with the same old questions beginning with why. Traditional Western religions have struggled since the beginning to come up with a rational, reasoned explanation for the oneness on which to base a monotheistic worship, because the human brain struggles to articulate rationally what the heart feels to be true. When it comes to understanding the nature of oneness, Eastern religions offer useful clues, such as the yin-yang symbol of light and dark nestled together within a circle of oneness. Another example comes from an 8th century Sanskrit text, the Vivek Achu Dabani, about, about what is real and what is illusion. It lists meditative steps on the path to moksha, moksha being the escape from the cycle of karma and rebirth that keeps dividing us from the light. It's characterized as beyond caste, creed, family, or lineage that which is without name and form, beyond merit and demerit, that which is beyond space, time, and sense objects. It teaches you are that, God himself. Meditate this within yourself. And by the way, I warned you, uh, 42 would come up again. Some Eastern traditions teach that moksha uh, often happens around age 42. In the West, in the 1500 years from Aristotle to Thomas Aquinas, philosophers wrestled over questions of oneness with somewhat less progress than in the East. Plato's student Aristotle argued in Book 8 of the uh, Physics and Book 12 of the Metaphysics what there must be, uh, that there must be an immortal, unchanging being ultimately responsible for all wholeness and orderliness in the sensible world. Plotinus, some two centuries after Jesus, got past the static image of the unmoved mover to an extent, at least by seeing the absolute God of, uh, as more like a, a stream. And he wrote, The first principle may indeed be conceived of as a spring of water, which is its own origin, and which pours its water into many streams without itself becoming exhausted by what it yields, or without even running slow 
because the streams that it forms before the flowing away each in its own direction, and while knowing which direction it is to follow, yet mingles its waters with a spring. That's in, from Plotinus at Neod. It was a crucial element of Neoplatonism that closed the circle, solidifying a belief for religions to build on. Neoplatonism taught that all things progress from the one, and all things, particularly human souls, have a destiny to return to the one. This late Athenian Neoplatonic law of imminence was used by St. Thomas Aquinas in Summa Contra Gentiles uh, to show that God knows not only himself, like Aristotle's God, but also all the creatures in creation. So after a thousand years of Western philosophic thought, this was what Thomas Aquinas, a major father of the church, spent his time thinking and writing about. That is until he himself had an STE, a spiritually transformative experience. In the lives of the saints, Aquinas is quoted as saying, the end of my labors has come. All that I have written appears to be as so much straw after the things that have been revealed to me. Aquinas quit writing and never finished his magnum opus. He died three months later. He said and understood, in order that men might have knowledge of God, free of doubt and uncertainty, it was necessary for divine truth to be delivered to them by way of faith being told to them, as it were, by God himself, who cannot lie. Unfortunately, Catholic theologians chose to ignore St. Thomas' vision, his personal mystical experience, and continued to chew on the straw Aquinas himself had spit out. But just imagine, though, if NDE-like visions had been studied and taught in religion classes for the past 800 years instead of straw theology, how much further along our understanding of oneness as love might be? How much more mature are applications of that principle to our relationships with God and with the earth and with one another might be? But now, making up for lost time, NDEs have become a point of advancement toward an understanding of oneness being realized, at least in part, by NDE radio. Today, the clearest picture comes not from the great philosophers, but from the ground up, from the personal mystical experiences being visited upon ordinary people of faith or no faith, education or no education, and then shared with those who hear about other spiritually transformative experiences such as the listeners to NDE Radio and similar programs that have sprung up. For example, here's just one listener's recent response to an NDE interview I did back in February 1st, 2016. The interview was with Rich Kelly, a 15-year-old drowning victim, and the listener found it in our NDE Radio YouTube archives. About listening to the story, Uh, which was titled Life is a Stage Play, the listener, Jenny, wrote, I just came across Rich Kelly's NDE, Life is a Stage Play, a few days ago, and I just have never heard an experience like Rich's before that I felt instantly in my being so familiar. I can't really explain it. I remember before I could talk, home. And it's exactly how Rich describes it, simply love. I knew that this place, Earth, was not home. When I was eight years old, I had an OBE, and I found myself in space looking at Earth, and I didn't have a body, and a being was there, but I couldn't see it. I only knew its presence and that it telepathically told me that time was an illusion with a purpose, that Earth was an illusion with a purpose, and to respect it. And when Rich says this place is not real, it's the truth, That OBE was more real than here. This felt like the dream, and that was the reality. Now, what was it about this NDE that resonated with Jenny so completely? Well, we don't have time to present the entire interview, but here are some excerpts from Kelly's story. I was 15 years old when I drowned at Santa Monica Bay. My life flashed before me as I got my last glimpse of the shore, but it wasn't a life review. 
and there was no judgment. Then I was 15 feet down in the sand below. I just left. I looked at the earth from out in space, though it wasn't there in physical form. At that point, I could have told you every moment of my life. I could also have told you every moment of every person's life on the planet, of every person who had ever lived or ever will. It's like you suddenly get a library card to the celestial library. Everything's there and instantly available. You think of it, it comes to you. I was completely overwhelmed with a feeling of being at peace and that I was intensely loved. I had no fear, no trepidation. That feeling of being loved is so intense. That's the most important thing you can tell anyone back here on earth, that you're incredibly loved. It's so profound. There I was at peace in space, no body, no senses, virtually everything had been stripped out of me, except, if you will, my sixth sense. But the rest, it, I didn't miss it. It was so peaceful, so loving, so caring. I was totally at ease, waiting to see what happens next. And whatever it is, it's going to be lovely. That was my outlook. Understand, I was 15. I was declared an agnostic. A pastor told me, knock and it will be opened. I prayed for all I was worth, but I opened the door and no one was there, not even the mailman. So I thought, why does he hate me? I prayed, please show me the truth. And within a year, I died. My prayers were answered. There was a tunnel before me, but it was more of a psychological tunnel. If you see a pinpoint of light and you move closer, though you're not really moving, it might seem like you're moving through a tunnel. The love is so intense. You just want to go there. I'm afraid to call it God unless you say that God is love. Yes, I can climb on board with that in a heartbeat. I did not meet a God or a Jesus or a Buddha. I didn't meet any one person. I stepped into the light and felt surrounded by unbelievable numbers of beings that were just like you. You're all connected by this glue, this love, and you're part of each other, and it felt wonderful. There was nothing I had to say. The light was the collective of souls. Our capacity to remember things, to deal with things, is on a scale massive and astounding. We are huge. It's marvelous. No hierarchy, no judgment. Every, everybody there is a living, multidimensional uh, being, living lifetimes on multidimensional planets. And years look at the planet Earth and say, that is a dream world. This is what's real. This place is not real, and you aren't here. You are at source. This is an illusion. The only thing about it is that it, it that is not an illusion is that we're creating an experience, and we're good at this. When you come back to life from an NDE, you're coming back to a fantasy. Something grabbed an arm that wasn't there, and I got thrown back here where the waves were breaking, and I swam to shore and crawled onto the sand and lay there. That report of an NDE articulates meaningful insight about oneness beyond most Western theological reasoning of the past 20 centuries. And importantly, listener Jenny got it because it resonated with her own memory of an OBE. It's that resonance that makes the telling of NDE stories so important, so meaningful. We all came from there, so hearing each story can be like getting a letter from home. It resonates, too, when, with what Jesus was telling us 2,000 years ago. God is love, and so are we when we learn to appreciate that truth. And nothing gives us so clear a vision of that truth as telling of the visions known as NDEs and STEs. Well, here's another one uh, that a woman torn to pieces by events in this life experienced and reported to Ions. It's titled, We Are Already in Eternity, in Heaven, in the Light. She wrote, My experience occurred three months after my mother committed suicide due to mental illness. I was 19 years old at that time. 
I had a difficult childhood, which involved being beaten, psychologically abused, poverty, having my mom in psychiatric hospital and jail due to her mental illness, bullying, my parents' divorce. And as a teenager, I resorted to anorexia nervosa and self-harming to cope. When my mother committed suicide, it was more than I could endure. And I started to even think about suicide myself. I was looking for God, trying to find answers and comfort, but the pain was extreme. The love I had for my mom was incredibly deep, so her death was incredibly hard for me. One night I went to bed, and I suppose that I woke up, but with my soul only to express it the best I can. I looked to my right, and I saw an incredibly beautiful bright light that made me feel better and better as I looked at it. The light didn't come towards me, neither did I move towards it. I just realized it had always been there, the same way as when you lost your keys, but they're just right in front of you, and you finally realize that they were there all along. I thought to myself, how could I have not seen it for so long? Because obviously it was always there. Then I realized the light was on my left, underneath me, in front of me, everywhere. The light then started to rise in me. I didn't have a body, but I had a sense of occupying a certain space similar to that of my body. I also had a mental image of my body. The light rose higher and higher in me, and by rising, I mean that it started to engulf me. I became one with the light. And the more I became one with the light, the better I felt. It rose up to what my mental imagery envisioned as the equivalent of my hips, And at that point, I started to be afraid of losing myself in the light, that is, of losing my individuality. As I felt this fear, the light gently dropped to the equivalent of my feet. I then realized that I could totally trust the light to not force anything on me. But when the light was at my feet, I didn't feel as good as when it was more wrapped around me. It then started rising again up to the equivalent of my neck, the highest level at which I felt comfortable. At that point, I started having a very blurry memory of having lived a life on earth. It was incredibly blurry, much like when you wake up and you know you had a dream but can't manage to remember what it was. I felt puzzled because I knew the only thing that existed was the light, and I wondered how it was possible that I had lived anything else but the light. As I felt the questioning in my being in front of me, I I would say the equivalent of 40 meters, the, the light dropped, unraveling to reveal a beautiful garden with flowers, butterflies, and bushes. It was not a picture. It wasn't a hologram. I knew it was a real place, and had I wanted to, I could have walked, floated right into it. I didn't do it, though, because I had a sense that If I moved further from where I was, I could not go back. I never thought in terms of death or not going back to my earthly life. I only thought in terms of losing my identity, personality. But seeing this garden gave me the answer to my questions. I realized that the light contained everything, including my life on earth. Therefore, it made sense that there was only the light, yet that I had memories of a life. The instant I understood this, the light wrapped up the garden, and I only saw the light again. I knew it was eternity, and that it was incredibly vast, that I could walk, float for eternity to extreme distances, and that it would be exactly the same light. I decided to not move further again because I wanted to keep my sense of identity. After that, I don't remember anything. I just woke up in my bed, not really knowing where I was for a couple of minutes. I then acknowledged the incredible experience that I had just had and regretted my decision not to move further in the light. Besides showing me its peace and incredible beauty, the main message I got from my experience was the light is that we, my experience with the light is that we are in it right now, which is consistent with when Jesus said that the kingdom of God is among us. I always feel home now. The light is everywhere. I could be at the other end of the universe, and I would still be in my home, in our home. 
our magnificent eternal kingdom. What I understood from my experience is that when we die, we don't go anywhere. Our conscious awareness stops focusing on the physical spot of the universe that is our body, can expand in the whole light, or it can focus on anything it wants to create, such as the garden I saw. What I understood in the light is that it is everything. We are in the light right now. And that is ultimately the only thing that exists. Everything and everyone are part of it. Again, I believe the light contains every possibility, every timeline, every location. So we only die and stay dead when we want to. My experience of the light cured my depression and all my suffering. I understood how every experience of my life was a blessing and how together they allowed me a variety of experiences and to grow. I have no fear of death, nor a fear of when I will die. Ultimately, there is no death, just a shift in the spot in the universe our consciousness is focused on, expanded into everything. We are all already in eternity, in heaven, in the light, and it is the ultimate home. And that's where her report of that experience ends. So while science struggles with their observations of black holes and gravity waves, the Higgs boson particle that makes the immaterial solid, the structure and flow of time, energy, dark matter, and matter, in short, all the clues from science that we're dealing with a deeper reality. NDEers, in the meantime, at the rate of nearly a thousand a day in this country alone, are visiting that reality in person and bringing back reports of their experiences. Thomas Aquinas, some 800 years ago, tried to redirect the search when a vision of the other side turned all his brain-contrived writings into straw before his eyes. Must we wait for science to prove the oneness of a consciousness-infused world, or will we just learn to practice love the way we're expected to in order to enhance it? Frankly, we can't afford to wait for science to figure out the big picture. For want of utilizing love to preserve God's creation, we see the flora and fauna already dying from our lack of compassion for the earth. Moreover, there's an effort of some science to convince us there is no afterlife. If they convince a majority of us, it surely will confuse any understanding of love as the ultimate oneness our souls are designed to share and are meant to share. That oneness is the source of our being, the reason for our being, and the goal of our being. And all that stands in the way of that happy ending is a condition we call free will. In many aspects of our lives, free will may have little meaning. Indeed, the choice to accept or refuse God's love may be the only meaningful expression of free will that we can make. One of the most frequent conversations I have with listeners is over this question. If God loves us so much, how could there possibly be a hell? My response right along has been, God created us with the free will to choose to reunite with the light or not. It's our free will choice to make ourselves as unhappy as we'll be if we choose to walk away from love. This answer made sense logically. But it hurts my heart to think anyone would cut themselves off like that. The other day, though, I, I had a sudden memory that made, it, that made it more understandable. When I turned 12, my parents got me a German Shepherd pup to be my dog. Rusty and I quickly became inseparable. He grieved my departure each morning for school and celebrated my return. He slept with me at night and we played by day. But around the time Rusty turned two, my parents decided I should attend a seven-day boarding school in another state. Rusty did not take my departure well. He was too strong for my sisters to walk and sometimes even dragged them across the lawn. He terrified strangers. The postman and the garbage men were horrified as he jumped against the plate glass window, growling and barking furiously. 
My family took him to a trainer, but Rusty was declared untrainable. And when the trainer himself volunteered to take Rusty, the dog bit him badly. So it was a heavy moment when my father visited me at school to give me the bad news that Rusty was gone. It broke my heart, of course. And when my father left, I cried for a long time. That dog was my best friend and had been gentle with me his whole life. But sadly, though, he acted murderous to others. So I tell you my sad story as a parable for parable for why some of us in the end get separated from the oneness of God. My love for Rusty could symbolize God's love for each of us, while Rusty's behavior demonstrated the bad choices some of us make in dealing with others. When a dog cares only for his authoritarian owner, but snarls at the Jewish and Islamic dogs down the street, when he hates dogs of a different color or breed, and fights with others to get all the food in the bowl for himself and then eats the groceries as well, threatens to bite visitors, and whines constantly about how the kennel's being run. It's a problem for everyone. God offers forgiveness when we choose not to love. When we act cruelly and selfishly to others, he offers forgiveness. But if it's without remorse, despite numerous chances to seek God's loving forgiveness, then it's with a heavy heart. The light accepts our separation, a separation from one God dearly loves. After all, we learn oneness by practicing it here on earth through community. And when we choose not to love here, when we're too proud to seek forgiveness and change for the better here, we're learning to cut ourselves off by our own free will from merging with the light. And of course, to my way of thinking, to turn away from forgiveness and to choose to be cut off from the light would be a self-inflicted hell indeed. Well, so far we've been covering the glass half-full approach, pointing to the progress we're making, spreading the truth about uh, being, being learned these days from NDEs. But there are many forces in the world right now striving to divide and keep us from the oneness we seek by pushing the glass half-empty approach. Unfortunately, bad science lurks at the root of some of these problems. It reared again in a recent article, one listener to NDE Radio sent me from Psychology Today, where the author argues science should deny the existence of the soul. The article titled Souls, It's Time We Give Up the Ghost, Why We Don't Have Souls and Why That's Good News, was written by a Bill Sullivan, Ph.D., who states in the article, to view ourselves as flesh inhabited by a supernatural soul that is separate from the material world is woefully misguided and unhealthy. The soul is an idea rooted in selfishness and vanity, and it dilutes our sense of humility and empathy. Well, Sullivan is apparently oblivious to the millions of soul encounters with the other side, happening as OBEs, NDEs, visits with deceased relatives and angels, visions, reincarnations, communications with ghosts, and various other events that argue for the reality of individual souls. It's only because science can't replicate such events at will. Clearly a failure in the design of the scientific method in discovering spiritual facts. Many of these encounters have provided veridical evidence, such as many OBEs accurate witness to situations distant from the body, which experiencers describe in detail when they've recovered. It's this very common interplay of the natural, supernatural in our lives, in our lives here and beyond, that Sullivan is attempting to deny. What Sullivan is inflicting on Psychology Today readers, though, is a, is a deep distortion of our nature and promise. In fact, I expected him to suggest changing the magazine's name to Brainology Today, since the root meaning of psyche is spirit, is soul. 
He blames the notion of soul, and I'm quoting here on a dualism codified by the philosopher René Descartes in the 1600s with the dictum, I think, therefore I am. Weirdly, Sullivan has conflated the brain and the soul. But in fact, the brain and the soul serve two different functions. If there is an enemy to oneness, it's the brain. The brain is a tool evolved for individual survival in our 3D material world. It's an organic computer that learns by the pleasure-pain experience of the senses. It has evolved from the early guided, uh, du- guiding directive to kill or be killed when it's concerning a saber-toothed tiger. But the same impulse lingers in some even today in jungles uh, such as the stock market. The brain enables cooperation, but primarily when cooperation is proving to be more beneficial than not to the individual. The brain without the soul inclines toward a sliding scale from fear to hate with ego at the wheel. It's interesting that NDE-like revelations most often occur when the brain is temporarily disabled by accident, disease, or drugs. A good friend of mine reported that during her grand mal seizure, she had the answer to every question she had ever asked. But these answers were lost when her electrical brainstorm passed. The Russian author, Fyodor Fyodor Dostoevsky, was also given to grand mal seizures, and he described the experience this way. For several instants, I experience a happiness that is impossible in an ordinary state and of which other people have no conception. I feel full harmony in myself and in the whole world, and the feeling is so strong and sweet that for a few seconds of such bliss, one could give up 10 years of life, perhaps all of life. I felt that heaven descended to earth and swallowed me. I really attained God and was imbued with him. All of you healthy people don't even suspect what happiness is, that happiness that we epileptics experience for a second before an attack. Dostoevsky incorporated his STE revelations in at least four of his writings. So just shut down the brain for a moment and miracles can happen. The soul, when unimpeded by the brain, is a moderating force that emphatically reminds us the nature of the I am in us is love, intended to be expressed in empathy and compassion for one another. And by the way, Dr. Sullivan, Descartes' dictum, I think, therefore, I am, proclaims God's name in us. I am. I am the source and light of the soul that was breathed into us and which yearns to return to the I am. Sullivan's article is deeply flawed, but the problem remains that stupid memes spread easily on social media these days. If the internet decides that uh, psychology today says there's no such thing as a soul, another window to spiritual truth gets slammed shut for a generation of unchurched young people. All of us, in fact, are suffering to some extent from the poisons of the Internet. I will say once more that WWW, the World Wide Web, is a perfect tool for spreading lies, some by bots and trolls that in recent years have become major sources of social division. Just to remind you again, W in Hebrew becomes the sixth letter Vav. Their alphabet is also their number system. So Vav, 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 WWW, is the number 666, as described in John's Revelation chapter 13, regarding the beast from the earth. That passage ends with this clear explanation, quote, this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. That number is 666. This is not a number for one particular person's name, like Nero, as has been misunderstood in the past. The NIV, the, um, in a footnote, also translated as humanity's number. 
According to this, then, the beast whose image can speak is the World Wide Web, and humanity itself is the beast that came from the earth. Also, as predicted in Revelation, the World Wide Web does require people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark in the form of a chip. Today, most commonly located on a debit or a credit card, uh, to buy or sell through the internet. This prophecy from Revelation has indeed come true. But it's not some beast from hell. Rather, it's our own technology, as envisioned by St. John writing in a cave on Patmos some two millennia ago. Oh, and, and speaking of the Bible, some may have noticed 42 plays a role in how long the world awaits Jesus. The number of generations between Abraham and Jesus is 42. Also, the number of months the Antichrist will reign is 42. Anyway, you'll be glad to know I'm not suggesting it's necessary to throw away your phones and laptops. We know this beast from the earth because it's us, and through love, we know how to deal with us. All in all, the evil's not intrinsic to the technology, but in how we use it. And if the revelations of love on NDE radio can offset by even a little the forces of division on the internet, then we're in the right place at the right time. In case my discussion of brainology today and 666 as a tool, as a tool of division has been worrisome, I want to wrap this up with an amazing song. And no, I'm not going to sing it. But I'd urge you to look for Roseanne Cash's singing her song, Particle and Wave. Science discovered quite a while ago that particle and wave is the dual nature of light. And apparently Cash wrote the song while thinking about the spiritual implications of quantum. Now, please understand, I don't know for sure what she intended her lyrics to mean. This is just my personal interpretation. The song goes, light is particle and wave. I take that to mean the oneness of light does appear as the physical, the particle, earth, and the spiritual, the wave, heaven. But the intrinsic oneness of light underlies both. Our history is written large upon the page. That is, everything becomes one in the book. The star and middle age. That is, the birth and the calling. The love that fades to black, once revealed, won't be taken back. That is, love survives death. Light, nothing can escape. That's because light is the I am. The ignorance we once forgave, as in the prayer, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, may not apply anymore. In the future, if we don't decide to change the things we cannot save, that is, ignorance may not serve as an excuse in the future because now we know. But it slows to shine upon your face. That is, the light pauses to acknowledge the you in all this. We owe everything, everything, everything to this rainbow of suffering. That is, we owe everything to love sacrifice upon humanity's cross. And she finishes, light is particle and wave, reflections of this place, refractions of our grace. It reveals what we don't, it reveals what we won't dare. And it's slow, so I can hold you near. That is, the light as particle reflects the physical. The light as wave refracts Holy Spirit from light into grace. The light reveals our fear and gives us time to hold light near, even close enough to dispel our fear and make us one. Oh, and by the way, concerning that rainbow of suffering, the angle at which light ref reflects off water to create a rainbow is 42 degrees. Let me close with a prayer to grow compassion 
Earth's Path to Oneness. This prayer was written by Shante Deva, a Buddhist monk of the Mahayana tradition who lived around 700 AD. I've read that the Dalai Lama considers this text to be the source for developing altruism. It is also said he recites this prayer every morning. It's called the Bodhisattva prayer because Bodhisattvas are souls who reincarnate back into duality to help humanity until all are awakened to the light. The Bodhisattva prayer for humanity. May I be a guard for those who need protection, a guide for those on the path, a boat, a raft, a bridge for those who wish to cross the flood. May I be a lamp in the darkness, a resting place for the weary, a healing medicine for all who are sick, a vase of plenty, a tree of miracles, and for the boundless multitudes of living beings, may I bring sustenance and awakening, enduring like the earth and sky until all beings are freed from sorrow and all are awakened. Amen. And thanks for listening. If listeners would like to hear this show again or any of our more than 450 archived ad-free NDE interviews, go to TalkZone's NDE radio site and hit the Past Shows button, or go to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, where you can subscribe to and comment on the complete NDE radio library. Be sure to check out our NDE Radio Facebook page. Just search NDE Radio with Lee Whitting on your Facebook app. And listen next Monday... 11 a.m. Eastern at Talk Zone for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening.